I like to say there's three innate needs of every human being, which is the need for belonging, the need for empowerment, and the need for meaning. And if the manager or whoever's in charge doesn't really care about that stuff, then the individual feels like, what am I here for? Pulling a paycheck. So, you know, I have to think of it in terms of it's both. Uh, Gallup did something recently on managers and how to show more compassion. If you look at HBR, there's a whole bunch of articles in HBR about, you know, how do we deal with feelings in the workplace? Because feelings in the workplace, we're always like, yeah, we don't deal with feelings here. We just deal with, you know, intellectual thought and how we're getting shit done. Um, you know, but I think that's a big piece of it. And the culture definitely plays into it. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast brought to you by Cartavera, the leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business and grow your life. We're also excited to announce that we are now part of Evergreen Podcast Network, and we look forward to expanding our message, our reach and our impact through this new relationship with Evergreen. Today, we have Jacqueline Wales with us, and she is here to talk about perhaps the most important topic in leadership, culture, team development, and that is four letters, fear. Jacqueline is here to talk about our fears, the way they lead us, the way they block our leadership. She's the founder, creator, and curator of something called The Fearless Factor, and we are gonna take a deep dive, as Jacqueline recommends, into the topic of fear. We're also gonna talk about the key questions to ask to help us move past our fear in a healthy, impactful way. She's gonna talk about how vital it is to take a deep and honest dive into our fears and the drivers of our fears. And we're gonna talk about the important role of leadership, vulnerability in organizations and the need, as she says, to bring more compassion and humanity to work. It's going to be a rich and deep conversation about what it takes to be an impactful leader today and the importance of moving past our fears. For as Jacqueline says, being fearless is not the absence of fear, but the courage to take the next steps. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. We're excited to be back here for another interesting conversation. And I know it's going to be interesting because we're going to be talking about fear. And we talk a lot about fear here. And in fact, Craig and I have often offered that fear is one of the main, if not the primary thing that just gets in our way, but we often are unwilling to even acknowledge it. Well, we've got Jacqueline Wales with us and she goes head, she goes head first into fear. She is the creator, founder, uh, curator of the concept of the fearless factor. She's an author. She's written at least three books, When the Crow Sings. The Fearless Factor, The Fearless Factor at Work, soon to be published, Fearless Women Leading the Way. Uh, I love this. She's a writer, a singer, a global nomad who's lived and traveled on three continents, developed a passion for martial arts, earning a black belt in karate, and now an avid CrossFit athlete. Uh, she's an active co-partner in a long-term marriage. Love that. And along the way, became the mother of four children who've grown up to be amazing adults. Awesome. Here's what I want you to hear about Jacqueline. She's an astute, 
observer of behavior. I love that. We're going to have a lot in common. She's endlessly fascinated by the messiness of being human. (laughs) And she finds that people who are vulnerable and honest about their struggles to be incredibly interesting and courageous. And here it is. She believes that being fearless is not the absence of fear, but the courage to take the next step. So welcome, Jacqueline. My pleasure to be here, Jeff and Craig. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, looking forward to it. So Jacqueline, give us, I gave you some of the the folks, some of the overview, give us a little bit of the backstory. So people are always curious about why I'm so involved in the fear work. And and frankly, it was, it started in my childhood. Um, You know, like many of us, you know, we grew up in families that were probably more dysfunctional than functional. And I grew up with, with a lot, which was father was an alcoholic. We grew up in poverty. Uh, There was tremendous behavioral issues uh, growing up. And my self-esteem was rock bottom. I I basically grew up to the expectation was go into the factory, do what everybody else has done, and have no ambition, no dreams. Mm. I actually had the opposite problem. I had too many dreams. I had too many ideas on where I wanted to go. But because my confidence level was really, really low, because I really didn't know who I was, I made an awful lot of mistakes along the way, uh, including children born before marriage, given up for adoption, married and divorced, leaving a child behind, lots of drug and alcohol issues. And it really wasn't until I was in my 30s when I started to get my act together because I had more children and another marriage. And I needed to get my shit together, frankly. So in my 40s, I became a writer. I became a singer. I took up martial arts. I traveled the globe. I lived in Paris, Amsterdam, Bali, New York, and uh, finally came back to California, which, by the way, I went from Edinburgh, Scotland to London to San Francisco. This was like, you know, 1970s. So, you know, when we talk about being a global nomad and living on three continents, I have been around the world and, uh, you know, done a whole lot of stuff. Uh, And then when I was in my 50s, I decided that uh, after a huge financial collapse, by the way, we decided that I need to go to work. (laughs) Like, really? Go to work? Okay. What am I going to do? Well, I became a coach because my coach suggested that with all my life experiences, with everything I had gone through, maybe I had something to teach other people about how to deal with fear. And so fear became it. And, uh, you know, first company was the Fearless 50s, uh, talking to women who were in midlife transitions. And then uh, later on, it was a case of, uh, you know, branching out a bit. I've worked a lot with millennial managers. And now I'm back to working with accomplished women because I want to see more women in leadership. I want to see more women taking the power because, frankly, the men maybe, you know, present company accepted, but men have really screwed it up. So let's have, let's have some women in roles, you know, see what happens then. Right. Wow. wow. So were the, the things that you went after the, the karate, the, some of the other aspects, was that because you wanted to conquer fear or because they it, just seemed interesting to you? you know, it was interesting. My kids uh, started out doing uh, Taekwondo and, mm-hmm. I'm sitting there watching it and thinking, you know, I've always wanted to try this. And so I started taking private lessons while they were having their lessons. And it was like a duck to water. I was like, whoa, (laughs) I finally found a way to express all this physical, Uh, emotional, spiritual energy that I have been sitting on for a very, very long time. The 40s were, you know, late 30s, 40s were an incredible time of transformation. 
doing some really, really hard work of, of checking out the mindset, mm. checking out what was it that was running and sabotaging my life. Uh, and and finding out that you know I was I was much more capable than I thought I was because <laughs> uh, I really had very little belief. But the Taekwondo was a start, and then we moved from Los Angeles, where we were at the time, to uh, Paris, and I I took up karate instead of Taekwondo because I couldn't find a studio, <laughs> and um, I ended up with a black belt in karate at the age of forty nine. All with, right, good for you. You know who knew. And I was in my 60s when I discovered CrossFit. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> nice. So Jacqueline, you've dove right into fear. And it's such an interesting topic. We had some guests on in the last year talking about that one of the greatest fears for leaders is the fear of being perceived as afraid. Now, when I hear <laughs> that, I go, that sounds like a big problem. <laughs> So speak, I guess, start at the high level, the role of you see fear as it plays out with leaders today in an unhealthy way. Here's my take on fear. My big question is, why does fear matter to our success? Now, this is huge. You know, I mean, I went to Google and I looked this question up and Google couldn't answer it. You know, (laughs) basically they came up with fear of success. Yeah, well, that's not what I'm talking about. Why does fear matter to our success? And here's the thing, it's a driver. Because when we are in that discomfort zone, when we are stretching ourselves, when we are in growth mode, we're always going to feel fear. Can I do it? Am I capable? Mm. Will there be forces outside my understanding right now that are going to interrupt whatever dreams and goals I might have? There's all kinds of of self-doubt that sets in when we're approaching something new. So I like to say that, you know, being fearless is not the absence of fear, but the courage to take that next step. And the courage to take that next step is when you acknowledge your fear and you go, yep, scared as can be right now, but I'm going to do it anyway. You remember the book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, Susan Jeffers, years ago? You got that title absolutely right on. And in fact, she endorsed my first book, The Fearless Factor. Mm. But the, the point being is that if we are not feeling anxious, uncomfortable, nothing changes. Mm. So the fear can either stop you and keep you stuck or keep you in that safe place. Or it can be that driver that says, see what happens. Take a risk move it forward so with that is is there a switch that we can flip to move us from paralyzation to propelling us forward you know here's the here's the internal switch think about your own success and what you've you've done with your life so far how many times did you meet a wall and you decided you're either going to go over it under it around it it's the same thing when i was doing karate My teacher told me I did my best work when I was exhausted because I wasn't overthinking it at that point. (laughs) Yeah. So you either you're going to use that natural energy and you have it because if you're already a certain achievement in life, you've already faced those things. So think back to how did you handle that? So there's no switch. There's simply an awareness or recognition that if I stay where I am right now, yeah, I'm just going to go along to get along. 
But if I push past that place of discomfort, if I know in my pit of my stomach, and you can usually feel it, it's in your body, you know, you pay attention to those signals. Then you start to question yourself because questions are really the issue on this thing. You know, it's like, what do you really want? Where do you really want to go? Who do you really think you are? You know, that old thing of who do you think you are? Well, who do you think you are? And are you prepared to do the work to find out if that's true? Okay. So it's a choice. It's a choice. Yeah. So if there is a switch, it's a choice. It's a decision. And here's what I like to say when people say, oh, but I might fail. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's look at that one. What is failure? It's a choice, a decision, or an expectation that it didn't go the way you wanted it to. Boom. So what's next? So Jacqueline, let me ask you this question, because you talked a number of times about feeling the fear. And what I've learned for myself is, in my life, the fear that is the biggest problem for me, I don't feel actually. It is not, it is so deep. But I'm, I'm now aware that it is fear. If I'm not getting where I want to go, I know it's fear, but I haven't felt anything. So it's very insidious that way. And I have that with a lot of clients who will say, well, I don't feel any fear. I'm just like this one. I'm just procrastinating. (laughs) Uh Yeah. So what are you afraid of? I'm not afraid of anything. I'm just procrastinating. So talk about the challenge of people, their head overwhelms and tells themselves they're not feeling something that's fear. Well, think about, you know, we're, we're talking about denial here, you know, and as we know, it's not a river in Egypt, you know, it's denial. And, and we're all very good at that. You know, it's like, well, it's not really what other people think it is, or it's not really that, you know, so the denial piece, and we can, psychologically, we can bury stuff as deep as you want to. God knows I certainly did for a long, long time, you know, but when we start to acknowledge it, when we start to get vulnerable with it, because that's why we are in denials. And frankly, when you're, feeling that that thing but it's not up here it's in your it's in your psyche basically um when you can't articulate what it is that's stopping you so you can use the word procrastination you can yeah i procrastinate okay so what is it about procrastination that you really enjoy well i don't enjoy it (laughs) so then what is it about procrastination that you get satisfaction out of well, it's not very satisfying either. Okay, great. So then what do you think is at root of that? So you see how the questions become, and your coaches, you know this, the questions become the drivers to explore and really allow yourself the possibility of something else. And that something else might be, you know, I'm worried I don't succeed. I've heard people say, I, I don't have any fear. And I'll say, well, do you have any worries? Oh, yeah, I have worries. Okay, great. Have you ever felt anxious? Yeah, I felt anxious. Okay. So we just use a different word for it, you know, but it's, it's all related on, on a fundamental level because fear is an emotion that's driven by a thought where that thought is conscious or not. That's a whole other issue. So what's, what do you think drives that? That's a great point that and that's, those are words I hear a lot. Someone will say, I'm not really afraid. I'm just more anxious. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> okay. That must feel better for you. And I I think, I believe we do a disservice to ourselves and our own growth when we try and mollify the term. I do, because 
if they say, am I anxious? I don't have to really deal with it. It's just anxious. Um, so why do you think we put these labels on? Are we just terrified of the word fear? Uh, I think the word fear is is overrated, frankly. Um, <laughs> I, I think that we, we definitely get into, oh, my God, you know, we're going into a Stephen King movie or whatever, you know. Um, it, it's It's really, it's an emotion. It's like grief, sadness, anger. You know, it's like fear. Oh, yeah. There's an emotion right there, except people aren't classifying it as an emotion. But as I say, it's an emotion driven by thinking. So we put labels on stuff. And that's really, you know, it's like a security blanket. You know, if I put a label on something, I'm going to feel a whole lot better about it. So, yeah, I'm anxious. Mm -mm -mm. So what's at the bottom of the anxiety? Okay, let's question that one. Well, you know, I need more money. I'm not sure I have the right resources. I'm not sure if I'm really capable. Okay, great. So you don't want to apply the word fear to that, but you can certainly say I'm uncomfortable with whatever it is. And then, of course, we can go from there. So you don't actually need to use the word fear to address the issues. But what you do have to do is get honest with yourself about what it is that is creating the discomfort in your life. Tony Robbins said years ago, the quality of your life is determined by how comfortable you can be being uncomfortable. Now, think about that. We yeah. do not grow without being uncomfortable because you're pushing past the, the, the barriers. You're overcoming the challenges, whatever. So Jacqueline, you talked about, use the phrase denial of fear. And I'm curious, you work a lot with women. Um, I would say Craig and I collectively, it's a mix. And in my business, it's more men. I have a sense there's a different level of denial of fear between men and women. And I believe it's higher with men. Uh, because my experience is it's a terrifying idea because men perceive it as a weakness. I'm well, curious, do you see any differences between the yeah, genders and denial? Women are much more able to sit down and either talk with their their peers or with other women friends about how I'm feeling. Men don't sit down and talk about how they're feeling. They talk about what they're doing. They talk about what they're winning. They talk about where they think they're going and how they're succeeding and so forth. And so there becomes, you know, and this is probably going to sound like a kind of generalization, but for men, a lot of the conversation is about how well are you doing in the world? Whereas, you know, women are more likely to say, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. what's, what's up with you? Yep. Now, a lot of women and the women I work with, you know, they've accomplished a great deal in their lives, but they also know that there's certain things that they could have done better. They could speak up more loudly in meetings. They could share ideas. They can uh, make more attempt to connect. We know that men and women network differently. You know, the guys go to the clubs and they go golfing and they do all this kind of stuff. Women sit together and, and talk about, you know, things that matter to them, like their families, <laughs> that and the next thing. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's a difference in the sexes. But at the same time, the, the urge for success is the same. And when we look at companies that are led by women, a lot of the times they're a lot more successful than the men-driven companies mm -hmm. because they're more collaborative, because they're more willing to take the other point of view. Men can be very myopic. 
I do a lot of behavioral work in, in my, uh, my coaching practice uh, where we actually measure the behaviors of individuals on 12 uh, particular uh, regions. And we look at aggressive, defensive, passive, defensive, and constructive. And I'll tell you right now, the, 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 the males that I, I do a lot of work with, hell of a lot aggressive, defensive, it's competitive, it's power-driven, it's oppositional, it's perfectionism. These are the four areas of aggressive, defensive behaviors. And you find it in, in a lot in, in men. And I've had, a, as I say, a wide spectrum. I've done hundreds of these at this point in time. On the passive defensive side, you've got the need for approval. You've got the need to be conventional and follow the rules. You've got the need for, for avoidance where you're not making decisions. You know, these are some of the, the other behaviors. And then on the constructive side, you've got collaboration, helping other people grow and develop, knowing who you are, knowing what it is you want to achieve. That's a constructive side of things. So when you measure that out and you understand what the behaviors are, at base of that, a lot of the time is fear. Why do I need to win if I have a strong competitive nature? Why do I have to be better than the other person? Because at base, I don't feel good enough about me. Mm. If I'm a perfectionist, it's the same deal. I have very high standards. I will drive myself hard. I will work long hours and I will expect that of other people. Why? Because I'm not good enough. Hmm. Wow. So Jacqueline, you, you, you talk a lot about women. You work a lot with women and you mentioned that women are more likely to talk about their feelings. And I agree with that. What, what struck me is I didn't, not sure I completely followed is I hear often, and I'm not claiming to be the center of it, but I hear often that women are their own worst enemies in the workplace. Yes. That they, so that they're, they're after, they're very competitive with each other. So I'm curious, are you finding that women in that workplace environment are sharing their feelings are being vulnerable? Cause I'm not, I'm not sure I'm hearing that. Yeah, I think there's a change. I agree. I mean, we're all our own worst enemies, Jeff. I mean, let's face it. You know, we all know how to sabotage ourselves. We all know how to get involved in behaviors that don't exactly serve our best interests. You know, so from that point of view, you know, being your worst enemy is about learning how to be your best friend. You know, the way you talk to yourself, there's a whole other issue. Women in the workplace. Um, at this point in time, I mean, there's always been the stories of women who don't support women, but women who don't support women uh, are, I think, are beginning to be in the minority. Because what I'm seeing is more and more women are really championing other women. Um, my latest book, The Fearless Women Leading the Way, I'm interviewing women. I have five questions for them. Where has fear limited your opportunities? What is the greatest contributor to your success? What would have to happen in, in, the work, in, the, in the workplace for you to feel like you have left a lasting legacy? What's your vision for the next three to five years? And what's your fearless factor? That's my five questions that I ask every one of my interviews at this moment. The interesting piece is the first two questions. Where has fear limited your success? A lot of the time it's because I didn't speak up. Because I didn't make the right decisions, because I didn't move forward with something. It started probably in school, and then it kind of went from there. They allowed other people to dictate what was happening 
with their careers instead of taking charge of it themselves. Men are a little bit better about that than women are. So that's a, that was a big piece that was coming up. The other piece about contributor to your success was other people helping me. And then the lasting legacy is about help, helping others move forward. Now I've done 20 interviews so far and my plan is to do about 50 of them. So it's a small sample, but these are all highly accomplished women. And when you look at what their answers are, Without equivocation, it's always about how do I help other people be more? How do I help other people rise up? How do I leave a legacy that says I was there for you? So to your point, Jeff, yes, I think there is a piece here about, you know, women can be competitive with one another. But what we're all beginning to realize is we better pull rank, pull, pull forces together because if we don't, if we keep that separation going on, we continue to have less women in, in the work. You know, and look at the numbers in the last year. Women have, who have, have opted out of the workplace because of childcare, because of, of you know, whatever the issues are of, of doing dual stuff. And let's face it, that is a piece of being a woman. You're in this dual situation a lot of the time. Yeah. So do you find that when you're digging into this with whether it's with women or men that you're you're going for you, know, you start at the surface and you're kind of peeling back the onion or do you just cut straight to the middle and try to figure out what's that what's that core piece that's inf influencing everything else in your life? I've been told by clients that it's tough love with compassion. <laughs> and that for me is really about, you know, I, I listen to the stories and I can see through a lot of the stories. And a lot of it is because I used to tell the same stories. Yeah. You know, I, I've been there, done that. I know what that stuff looks and feels like. And it's yucky. You know, I don't want to admit to the truth. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to have to reveal what's really going on in my mind uh, and, and what's what's really driving my behaviors. Um, but I, you know, I'm highly intuitive. And so I tend to be able to unearth stuff fairly quickly in a conversation with with my clients. Um, so it tends to be rather direct. And of course, it's not for everybody. <laughs> right. But I want their hand held before they, they finally get down to what they're really there for. Yeah. Um, and you know, I just feel like we all have bullshit, you know, the stories we tell ourselves, I like to say, we're all master storytellers, <laughs> the stories that we tell ourselves about who we think we are and what we're capable of and, and how we're moving through life and so forth. And like, let's hold the mirror up here and have a look. A lot of people don't want to look. So if you, if you have a hundred people. Out of that, how many are telling themselves empowering stories and how many of them are telling themselves disempowering stories? Probably about 80%. Okay. Are disempowering? Now, and the numbers are really shocking. The, the, the number of people who are prepared to really do the work is very small. You know this. Yeah. How many people come to you for coaching and they kind of, you know, skate around stuff for a long time before they finally get to what it is they're there for. You know, it's like going to see a therapist, if you like. And God knows <laughs> I've therapy in my lifetime. Uh, I could get a degree in psychology. But um, the point being is that, you know, the, the numbers are about 20% of people are willing to show up and do the work, mm. really do the work. 
uh, and 80% will skate across the surface of it, but not really engage fully in it. So transformation is hard. Transformation is hard. Yeah. You know, you, you just, you don't go into it lightly. And if you do go into it lightly, you're not doing the work. Right. You know, Jacqueline, you talked about something that I want to touch on here. You mentioned the the number of women leaving the workforce for childcare reasons, et cetera. And I believe I remember last December, there was a shocking and to me frightening number that 100% of the job loss last December, like 100,000 jobs was women when you net it out. And that was troubling to me. I mean, I understand the drivers, but we've got a flaw in the model when that's the outcome. And what's the loss in the leadership and the teams when we lose those women in the workforce. So can you talk about the, the importance of having women in the workforce and in leadership? Because when we lose that, we're losing something in our businesses yeah, and our teams. You're absolutely correct. And, and part of it is that the companies they work for are not supportive. Um, you know, I like to say there are more dysfunctional companies than there are functional ones. And I, I think that most people I talk to 100% agree with me that, you know, there's there's a drive to increase profitability and there's a drive to increase performance, but there's no drive to support people in what they have to deal with, not just in the workplace, but outside as well. And uh, we see the results of that. So that number shocked me, too, when I looked at it, but did not surprise me, given the issues of COVID and all we've had to deal with, with homeschooling and so on and so forth. Um, but what's happening is if we don't have more women in the workplace in leadership, we are losing a lot of those elements that I spoke about earlier, the willingness to collaborate, the willingness to, you know, women are multi multi dimensional in many ways, simply because we've had to be, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of, of juggling and sorting stuff out. So what women bring to the workplace is really an ability to see many different facets of things and then help to bring that together into something cohesive and coherent. And I think that women in leadership bring that to it in, in a way that is different for men. Uh, you know, I mean, we know that men are very direct. They're very transactional. They're, they can't, uh, you know, generalizations here. Absolutely clear on that generalizations. But, you know, there is a, a transactional nature to men in business, whereas women in business are much more about relationships. They're much more about how can we together build something vital and when you have someone who's at the top in leadership and is a male and is very female focused then you see a lot more women rising to the top but there's still this issue of women being second-class citizens and you know as a woman I definitely saw it in my own experience now I have to say I never worked in corporate because my brief spell in corporate back in my early 30s convinced me that this was the wrong world for me. I was too much of a renegade. I was never going to follow the rules. And I wasn't going to be like everybody else. Like my mother used to say, why can't you be like everybody else? And I like to say, Oscar Wilde said, be yourself. Everybody else is taken. So, you know, it's, it's like there's a piece here. But my, to your point, Jeff, and I do tend to digress a little bit, but your point being is, we need women 
in the workforce to bring heart. Yes. Heart. And I say that with great intensity because when we lose the heart, when women are withdrawing from the workforce, what are we left with? Cold, hard, get it done stuff. So Jacqueline, I'm curious. Um, I just, I think we, I shared it on a podcast last week. You're familiar with the great resignation back yeah. in April. What I didn't know until a few weeks ago was the follow-up data, because I think it was 4 million voluntary quits in April, but April, May, and June, it was 11.5 million. So it didn't, it wasn't just one month. Do you have any insight? Like, is that equal among men and women or is that much more women? I haven't really researched that. And now I'm curious. I don't have the numbers on it, Jeff, but what I would say is that that great resignation is a real statement about the cultures that are operating in organizations at this point in time. We're still running on a post-Second World War model of how offices are supposed to be run. And now we've had the opportunity to really relook at what we're doing here. And of course, the whole conversation right now is on hybrid uh, employment, which you know some companies are for, other companies are not. But the point being about the resignation piece, and I see this, and I'm, I've been looking at culture for a few years now, is that people aren't willing to tolerate anymore what they have to do to get paycheck. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big piece of it. And I see Craig reacting to that one. So I'm pretty sure you understand what I'm saying here. Yeah. You know, absolutely. why are we working for ourselves? Because we don't want to deal with their bullshit. And if you've already been in their bullshit, you already know it. And I use that word because I really feel that way in all the conversations I have with people and what I see for myself where people are disconnected. People aren't really connecting to what do people really need to, you know, I mean, here's the thing. What do all businesses need? They need people. What's the biggest challenges that people have, the business has? People. Because they're, they're not connecting. So you resign. You say, screw it. I'm out of here. I don't need this. Except, of course, you need the paycheck. So for a lot of people, they'll keep their head down and get on with it. But there's more and more people wanting to rebel these days and say, no, this is not good enough. I think that's a good thing. I really do. Yeah, especially Gen Z. So it was saying the the um, survey that you were talking about, Jeff, was saying that 41 percent are considering quitting. And that jumps to 54 percent when Gen Z is considered alone. So that's that's huge numbers. And when you think about, you know, people in many cases leave their manager if if they're you know, a jerk or not supportive or not helping to grow them, they'll leave a company if it's if their values are misaligned. And so you see a lot of different issues going on there. Some of the companies are making really bad decisions about COVID related stuff. Some some managers just still haven't gotten the idea that to your point, Jacqueline, that we really need to actually take care of and I'll say grow our people. And if we don't have those opportunities, then you're kind of doing the same job over and over again, and it gets boring and you feel like you're stagnant and you don't want to be there anymore. Well, I'll give you a big example of that. I worked for a company where we, I was brought in to do 70 behavioral analyses, 70 behavioral assessments, and this is a 360. So you get one person's idea of how their behavior is driving their, their career and life, and then you get the feedback. 
Well, out of that 70 people that they gave this assessment to, in the hopes that maybe they would wake up and change their behavior, how many of them got coaching? Uh, I'm going to take a, how many was it? 70? 70. How many of them got coaching? Hmm, I'm going to take a wild guess and say two. Okay. Craig, what do you think? Uh, I'd be close in there and say five to 10. Okay. You're closer. There was seven people got coaching. There's your 10%. All at senior level. So if these 70 people, and it was across all dimensions. Only senior level? Only senior levels got the coaching. Crazy. Now, when I spoke to the CEO who I did an assessment for, I said to him, you know, you really need to get out of this office and find out what's going on with your people. <laughs> right. He had no interest. <laughs> wow. No. Okay. Well, that's a good company to uh, short. <laughs> he was only interested in money. He was only interested in how much money can we make. Wow. This is tragic. And this is a this is a microcosm of what's happening in some of these, you know, this was a, a medium-sized company. But you know, you think about these billions of dollars companies. You know, I've done assessments for billions of dollars companies and their communication skills on the senior level were atrocious. You know, uh, after doing the assessments, I looked at the CEO and I said, you know, if you don't get your shit together, you might as well just pack your bag and go home now. Because you've got to start relating. You've got to start thinking we instead of me. Yeah. So Jacqueline, Craig brings up an interesting point I'd love to ask you about. It has long been said, and I mean, I've heard it for over 20 years, which tells me it may no longer be true. That's what I'm getting at here. And the phrase is, and Craig said it, people don't quit companies, they quit their managers. I'm starting to believe that's not true. In that, I don't know that it's usually the one-off manager they're leaving and they've got a hundred great managers and one crappy one. I think they're leaving organizations and cultures that say, this is okay. It happens to be the manager who was a jerk, but if you have a jerk who's a manager, the company created that and allowed that. So do you think it is about the manager or is it about the more, the more global perspective of the leadership and the organization? I think manager is following the values of the, the mm. culture of the organization. Now, this may not be how this individual feels, but that's what the company expects of me. So therefore, I'm following those values. And those values might be highly competitive. They might be about, it's all about performance and productivity. And, and we really don't care about your feelings and whether you have a sense of, of belonging because, you know, I like to say there's three innate needs of every human being, which is the need for belonging, the need for empowerment and the need for meaning. And if the manager or whoever's in charge doesn't really care about that stuff, then the individual feels like, what am I here for? Pulling a paycheck. So, you know, I, I have to think of it in terms of it's both. Uh, Gallup did something recently on managers and how to show more compassion. If you look at HBR, there's a whole bunch of articles in HBR about, you know, how do we deal with feelings in the workplace? Because feelings in the workplace were always like, yeah, we don't deal with feelings here. We just deal with, you know, intellectual thought and how we're getting shit done. Um, you know, but I think that's a big piece of it. And the culture definitely plays into it because I've done some work. It's called the culture journey. Um, it's, again, it's a behavioral study. And if you map it out, 
you look at companies start with a set of values. You know, we we want to build an inclusive society. We want to make sure that everybody's honored, blah, blah, blah. And I've seen it on walls of large companies where they write up the values and you go, are they really living up to this? No, because it gets corrupted over time. Yeah. It gets corrupted over time. And it's the managers that drive the corruption of it because that's the way things are, you know, expected to be around here. That's really what it comes down to in a culture, the way that we do things around here. Well, I think when you when you talk about that, about the the managers corrupting things, that's that's absolutely true. They can. And if it's not then corrected by their managers, their their leaders, then it becomes part of the norm of the company. I've seen this time and again where you have this toxic manager, people exit primarily in that group, not throughout the organization, because the organization as a whole is good. But we have a toxic manager that for whatever reason is left in place. And whether it's not enough oversight or whether it's, you know, they're really kicking the numbers to your point, Jacqueline, you know, they're making the money. So we'll allow some dysfunction there. Um, and then we have the exodus from the people. But I've also seen the other side where people get into a company and then they realize, you know, the company really doesn't live up to its to what it says it does. And so mm -hmm. therefore, I don't want to work in a place like this. That's I, right. I think it's both and Jeff. And I, I think there's a piece here when we talked about Gen Z, which is that Gen Z is much willing to uh, jump ship yeah. than than any other generation. They're not willing to put up with, with it. I mean, my generation, the them. boomer generation, we put up with an awful lot, yeah. you know? Um, and, and of course we set the rules for what now amounts to some of the most dysfunctional companies out there. Um, you know, but again, it's, it's like, how willing are we to face our dysfunction? How yeah. willing are we to be able to say, this is not working? Um, the company that I do the assessments for, Human Synergistics, does something called organizational culture assessments, where we actually take, uh, and this is scientifically based, where we look at the entire organization and take it function by function to figure out what is really at play in how people are being treated and how people are have ex what their expectations are, and how do we measure that out? And it, is all measured out. And it's really quite significant when you can take a look at it. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. I've been a Beta Gamma Sigma member for the last 20 years. If you're looking to hire, the right candidate is closer than you think. Beta Gamma Sigma is the International Business Honor Society, exclusively for students at the top of their class in the top 5% of business schools in the world. BGS members are academic achievers, skilled leaders, and experienced problem solvers, and their skills and experience extend beyond the classroom. They hold chapter leadership positions, attend global business summits, complete ethics trainings, and engage in world-class internships with top corporations. When you hire a Beta Gamma Sigma member, you are truly hiring the best in business. For more information, email bgshonors at betagammasigma.org to learn more about how to hire BGS members. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. Jacqueline, something you said in your introduction, we talked about you being fascinated by the messiness of being human. <laughs> and relevant to this whole conversation, yesterday I just pulled up an article and the title of it was The Great Resignation Continues to Elevate Our Need for Humanity at Work. <laughs> and you're talking about humanity and you're talking about humanness. And let's just talk about that because we've had a number of guests on here uh, it's something we preach. I pre it, it's constant conversation. We're not seeing it in our organization. This is a big question with a direct ending to it, but what's the problem? Why aren't organizations bring more humanity at work when it seems to be overwhelming evidence? That's what's needed. Feelings are hard. Dealing with feelings and the messiness of feelings is hard. Especially for men, but, right? <laughs> well, I think it's, it's hard for anybody, frankly. Yeah. You know, if I'm going to get honest about how I'm feeling. But here's the other side of this. It's about communication. Do we know how to communicate our feelings? Do we understand how to give real good feedback? I mean, I spent a great deal of my time with my mid-level managers, teaching them how to have conversations with their direct reports. Why? Because they have no idea how to connect heart to heart. You know, I'm going to tell you what's wrong, and I'm going to tell you that, you know, you can do things better. But let me get curious here and ask you, what do you think is going on? What are you feeling about this? How can I help you be better at what you do so you can help me be better at what I do? Now, if we had more of those types of conversations, we'd be bringing humanity to the workplace. Yes. So you do, you talked about behavioral assessments. And as you were sharing that, Jacqueline, what came up for me is I'm familiar with a lot of different assessment tools, as is Craig. And there are some people who are more natural thinkers. And I have heard coaches say they just need to leverage their strengths. And I frankly struggle with that because if someone says I'm a thinker, that means I'm not going to ask you a feeling question if I decide to just leverage my strength. And I'm hearing you say we've got to change our conversation to create this change. So how do the assessments and our natural approaches intersect with this idea of changing how we communicate and interact. So here's the thing about any kind of assessment. It's a big picture view. <laughs> most, in my opinion, most assessments are a complete waste of money and time. Um, the reason why I love human synergistics behavioral assessments is because it's very granular. We take each of these um, behaviors and we break it down into specific behaviorals or behavior that's associated with this type of 
behavior. So if I'm talking about, you know, uh, uh, let's oppositional, let's take that one, for instance. Somebody's very oppositional. What will happen is they'll say no before they say yes. They'll push back. They won't allow others to really expand upon their ideas because they've already dismissed it as, as something not important. What's at the root of that is when you start looking at Okay, so what is that about? Well, you know, I'm not willing to give somebody the benefit of the doubt. That happens too in in that oppositional point of view. You're looking granularly at what about that matters to you that you're not giving people room to breathe. And you start to find out that the insecurities around that, and this is in the conversation that I have with them, is really high. You know, um, if I give people room, then I'm going to lose something. That becomes the the, the bottom line on that one. Uh, so, you know, when we start to pick it apart and we start to get very granular about it, what I then get down to is a lot of questions. And what I found is, and I've had uh, sessions with people where, you know, I will literally intuitively say to them, why are you playing so small? <laughs> And then they stop and they go, well, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I point out, you know, all the things that are going well for them. And then you look at the stuff that's not going so well. So what's that about for you? Um, And one person had, you know, lost his wife many years before and uh, he never got over it. And so he turned down promotions and he turned down the opportunity. And he's an incredibly creative, amazing guy. And... um, just out of the blue, I looked straight at him after I was doing when I was doing the assessment, and I said, "You buried your wife. You didn't bury yourself, but mm. you're doing a good job of it right now." And in that moment, he was able to go, <laughs> "Yeah." Now this was pretty blunt, and this is very direct, and coaches aren't supposed to do that. But you know, I felt in the moment it was appropriate, and and so there's a feeling piece. There's the humanity piece right there, human and human. We all want to be seen and heard. Yeah. You know, and it's not necessarily about you need to like me, but we all want to be seen and heard. And then many times in the workplace, we're not. We're just a cog in the wheel. Get the work done. So um, I'm actually, I'm going to ask Craig a question to layer on this. So, Craig, you've talked many times about how your mind historically you all when someone said how do you feel you told them how you thought right because that was your natural state right yep and how you've worked to learn to answer with the feeling side mm-hmm. i'm just curious craig have you how have you seen the shift when you're trying to use those words as a well as well <laughs> do you find there's one thing to answer the actual question that was asked but there's also you shifting to get away from what do you think about this to what are you how are you feeling about this right was one harder than the other? And where's that journey? Well, I think part of it is it, it goes through the the same cycles as almost any other skill. You know, you have that unconscious incompetence and you move into the unconscious competence. And so I'm somewhere in the middle with, you know, sometimes I, I just naturally ask the right questions, <laughs> you know, how are you feeling? And, and tell me more about what's, what's going on with you versus, you know, what let's, let's just talk about the topic. You know, and so there's there's a combination of things because I'm still rather intellectual. So I'll, I'll talk about those things. But I also do want to know what's going on inside the person and how they're feeling and how it's how it's manifesting for themselves. So it's a it's a process. Um, 
mean, I don't know that I'll ever get totally out of my head. I don't know if that's necessarily would be a good thing for me. <laughs> so Jacqueline, as you look at people like Craig or anybody who's trying to make these adjustments, we're all talking about the same adjustments or similar yeah. adjustments. What's the role of fear in making these adjustments? Let's come back to your core topic, mm. fear. So if we go back to what I said originally, you know, acknowledging that we are afraid of something, i.e. if I do speak up for what I believe in, what's going to happen? Um, if I do tell the truth about how I'm truly feeling, will it be uh, demolished or will it will I be supported? That that becomes, you know, a driver right there. So if we think again about, you know, the fear of sharing feelings when we're not used to that, when we are primarily intellectual beings, we're head people, you know, and I live with a head person, trust me. And when you ask him about his feelings, he's like, you know, why do we need to talk about that? <laughs> and, and, yeah. and so, you know, I, I, over the years, I've been with him now for 42 years. So I've had a lot of experience with him. Uh, but the point being is that he's gotten better over the years about sharing what he's feeling, but he's a very internal kind of guy and, and he's very cerebral. So feelings are not the, the, the first thing he's going to talk about. Whereas me, I'm happy to talk about feelings all day long, you know, because, <laughs> but in the early days of my life, I couldn't talk about my feelings. I remember when I was about maybe 26 years old, sitting with a psychologist who was just happened to be in a casual conversation. And he asked me about how I was feeling. And I saw this steel door come down. <laughs> And I was like, we don't talk about feelings. Wow. Because <laughs> if I start talking about my feelings, I do not know where that river will end. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that's that that's the fear right there. And I think that may be the fear on the other side too, of of asking the questions. And so, you know, if I'm coming in as more of a, you know, thinker versus a feeler, and I start asking questions about feelings. I don't necessarily know how to deal with that versus if we're having an intellectual conversation, I can, I can spar with you. Right. right. So that, that fear of what happens if they actually let loose, how do I deal with something? If, if now they're in pain in some way, maybe this is going to negatively impact my relationship with this person. So this is about training. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes. there's, there's no question, just like your intellect was about training, you know, your head is full of, of great information and you yeah. use that on a daily basis. When you're not used to dealing with feelings, you have to learn how to deal with those feelings. So somebody's sitting there crying in front of you and you feel like you got to fix it. Well, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> All you're supposed to be doing is just sitting there going, empathize. I understand. Wow. I get it. I'm not here to fix you. And that's wow. a mistake too many people make when they're dealing with feelings. I'm supposed to fix it. There's nothing to fix. Sounds like the typical guy response. I've, I've definitely yeah. been guilty of that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, simply it's just, you know, I'm here. I see you. Yeah. I hear you. Again, back to people want to be seen and heard. There's nothing more complicated than that. Mm. So if you've been doing a shitty job and your, your, your boss is there saying to you, you know, could be doing things a little bit better, you know? So tell me a little bit about what you're seeing. How do you feel about what you've been doing? 
well, I've been doing my best, but, you know, and you give people a lot of rope, you know, you give yeah. them some room to, to, to explore. Um, but I've also had clients where they've tried their conversations, they've gone into the feelings, blah, 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 still didn't work. The work was still useless. Then my advice is can them. Yeah. They're done. You've given them every opportunity. They're not the right fit. That's it. Yeah. So Jacqueline, you, we've talked a lot about vulnerability in the context of emotion. And we would offer that emotions is one part of vulnerability. And, and I actually see a lot of leaders and leadership discussions. Their greatest fear is the emotion side. And we'll often talk to them about, well, yes, but that's a piece, but there's lots of ways to be vulnerable. Yes. You know, and like, for example, in your conversation with the team member where you're asking them how they think they're doing, it takes them being vulnerable to be honest about it. See, I'm really struggling with this. That's vulnerability, but they're not going to do that unless they've seen that modeled from leadership. So can you talk about the role of vulnerability in leadership outside of the emotions? Yes, absolutely. And, and you're, you're 100% correct. There has to be a role model for this. So if, if your leader is not allowing for his vulnerability or her vulnerability to show, i.e., something comes up, somebody's looking for an answer, how comfortable are you saying, I don't know? <laughs> Instead of jumping into, well, you know, it's this, that, the next thing, whatever, you know, I really don't know. But you know what? Maybe together we can go find out. <laughs> That's a much better answer. Happen. You know, think about if that were a switch right there. It's inclusive. You know, yeah. we talk about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. There's a whole other conversation right there. But mm -hmm. the inclusivity of even just that little piece right there makes me feel like I belong somewhere. Makes me feel like we are invested in it together. Hmm. because the separation issues are really what where the vulnerability is you know i know better than you i've got all the answers nobody's got all the answers i'm not a walking encyclopedia and even if i were i still don't have all the answers but being willing to say that and say it out loud and say let's find out that's a major piece right there well thank you for that jacqueline um as, we, as we're nearing the end here, there's something you said almost in the beginning that I've been curious about. You said that there were these five questions you're asking the women in your interviews. And the last one struck me. You said, what's, what's your fearless factor? And I heard the question, but I wasn't even clear what you're asking in that. So what is that question and what are our fearless factors? So when you think about where fear shows up in your life, and what do you do to move beyond it? So the answer to that question for some people is determination. You know, fear shows up in my life and I'm determined to get to the other side of it. A lot of people tell me resilience. You know, I know how to bounce back. Um, another people, you know, some people would say, just do it, you know, when you're, you're in fear. So the fearless piece, the fearless factor is what is that one thing that you feel overcomes everything else when fear shows up in your life? Oh, I misspoke then, didn't I? I wrote it down correctly and I misasked the question. It does say, <laughs> what's your fearless factor? Okay, that's interesting. I think for me, 
it would be presence. Because what I found is when I'm afraid, I'm not present. So I work my way back to presence versus working away from fear. I think it depends well, on the fear for me. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. I'll, I'll analyze it. Sometimes I'll just go do exactly what scares me to get over the fear. Yeah. Feel the fear and do it anyway. Yeah. yeah. That's what but I'm trying to, to do with point presence, Jeff, I just want to speak to that for a moment. Fear is future focused for the yeah. most part. Right. It's not present focused. Right. What I like to say about fear is ask yourself one question. Do you have any evidence that your fears are real? Is it empirical? Nine times out of 10, it's the stories we're telling ourselves. Yep. So when we're in fear, we're already out in the future. And I can't tell you, five minutes ago is already gone. And I can't even tell you what we were talking about five minutes ago. And I have no idea what's going to happen five minutes from now. But what I can say is if I'm present right now, and I'm not impervious to fear, by the way. You know, every time I make a leap in my business, every time I make a leap into a new territory, I am terrified. And I'm about to make a huge leap because I want to do a TED Talk on all of this stuff. And am I scared about doing that? Hell yeah. But I've been involved in a public speaking program for the last eight months with some of the best people in the industry. And I know I'm very well prepared for it. But my mind says, really, really, you're going to pull that off? And the answer is absolutely. Hell yeah. You know? <laughs> um, so, you know, it, that, it's that piece that you, you got to be thinking about. So my fearless factor is perseverance. I have been knocked down so many times. And this is why I love martial arts. Fall down, you get back up. There are six things in martial arts that I learned. And the first one was commitment. You got to be committed to the fight. If you're not committed to the fight, you might as well just leave immediately. The second piece is focused. You got to be focused on your opponent and not their arms and legs, but on their eyes, because that's, you can see everything when you look at somebody's eyes, mm -hmm. everything. The third piece of that is discipline. Thousands of hours of doing the same thing over and over and over again. Then you got to have follow through because if somebody throws something, you got to be able to come back with something else. Then there's got to be consistency. You got to know how to do the same thing over and over and over again. And the last piece is perseverance. Fall down, get up, fall down, get up. And I learned all six of those things doing martial arts. And I think it applies to everything in life. So Jacqueline, this has been just a wonderful conversation about so many important topics for lead, not just leaders, but every person. And as Craig and I are always talking about, everybody's a leader. So this is not about positional leaders. Every one of us has the opportunity to lead ourselves, lead others. Such an important conversation, fear. Uh, and vulnerability, and allowing more humanity. Such good stuff. So Jacqueline, we always want our guests to have an opportunity to talk about something you want to highlight or promote. So what is that for you? Well, for me, it's, it's you know, clearly I've, I've got a whole bunch of books that people can find on Amazon, but I also invite people to go to my website, JacquelineWales.com. And um, just for your guests, if you go into my courses page, there are some individual online courses, not the six-week packages, but the individual ones. And if they wish to go take a look at one of those, uh, they can put in the code JW21, and they'll get it for free. It's $149 value, and they get it for free. 
just by putting in the code JW21. And it is designed to give you some insights into self-awareness, emotional conversations, uh, resilience, all of these things. And they're, they're well put together online courses. So I would say, go help yourself to that. But all the information you need on me is at my website, JacquelineWales.com. Wonderful. And you mentioned the website. So what is the best way for people to connect with you? Is that on your website or somewhere that, else? It's on my website or you can email me again at Jacqueline at JacquelineWales.com. Very easy to reach. Well, we always wrap up with uh, one or two of our questions. And uh, the first question for you, Jacqueline, is what's the book that people need to read or listen to to impact their growth journey? There is a lot of books that I would recommend, but I think I would go with insights. And um, my brain has gone into some kind of zone right now. And I can't remember the author, but insight it is. And I'll tell you in a second who that author is. Uh, Tara. Give me one second. Tasha, Tasha Urick. Insights um, it was, was her book, and it gives you a lot of insight into types of characters, the things we can think about. I'd also recommend The Fearless Factor at work, because what I talked about in there is uh, self-awareness and emotional uh, uh, conversations. And one of the things that I do in all of my books is ask lots of questions. So if you're looking to make some changes, ask yourself a lot of deep, deep questions. Stay curious about yourself. So that would be my, my recommendation right there. It is a fantastic book. Oh, wonderful. So uh, as we wrap up, Jacqueline, what's that one piece of wisdom you want to leave our listeners with? Um, be fearless, see where it gets you. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, Jackman. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for your sharing. And more importantly, thanks for the work you're doing in the world and in organizations. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. It's been great to have, have the conversation. Thank you. If you enjoy the Leadership Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, we have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cartavera.com slash confident to find out more. See you on the inside. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.